morning. Morning to everyone across the street in the video venue. Good morning to everyone who's watching us online. Uh, my name is Andrew Philbeck. I'm very excited to get to be with you today as we continue our Dear Church series as we look at the seven letters to the seven churches from Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, we're not quite done. We have one more week of this. Uh, this letter, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, is number six of the seven. So we are, are working our way down. I hope you've enjoyed this series. I hope you've been able to get a lot out of it. One of the things my dad and I have made a point to talk about each week as we look at these letters is their importance and relevance uh, you know, for the churches that they were written to, but also to our church and really any church around the world. And we do this by always mentioning the historical and the perennial nature of these words. This morning, of course, is no different. The church in Philadelphia received this letter, specifically written to them by Jesus because of some uh, opportunities, because of some issues, no doubt, they were facing as a church. But at the same time, you and I, we can read this letter, and because of the lasting nature of God's word, we can be encouraged, we can be challenged, we can be moved as if we were the intended audience. I hope that has been your experience with each of these weeks because there's so much that we can learn from these letters. Uh, this morning, what we're really going to talk about could be summed up in one word, and that's the word faithfulness. Faithfulness. I believe this is a huge issue in our culture. Maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't, that's fine. But I think, uh, simply putting it, things like quitting, things like giving up, they're far more common than they should be, and sometimes they're even lauded when they shouldn't be. I don't know if any of you have ever had the, the kind of, a, I would, I'd call it like a TV or a movie fantasy of just walking into your boss's office and just quitting. You know, I'm done, I'm walking out, throw the papers in the air, and leave. I don't know if that's something that people really fantasize about, but we do see it a lot. I know that I've never thought about that. Um, here, I'll give you a moment to think about that. Um, but, you know, there's this supposed freedom that we gain when we quit. You know, when we get rid of anything that's holding us back or holding us down or, you know, not allowing us to fulfill our full potential. And so people quit all sorts of things. They quit school. They quit jobs. They quit marriages. They quit being parents. And, you know, we could go on and on and on. And I think it is a huge issue. Now, I realize that there are times when, yes, quitting is necessary. There are situations that we need to get out of, regardless of, of what, you know, somebody who doesn't know our circumstances might think of. Sometimes it's obvious. You know, I'm sure we all know people who really want to quit smoking, for example. I'm sure we want that for them. We know there are other times when it's not that cut and dry. We also know that it applies to churches as well. My dad has mentioned this a number of times. You know, people quit their churches, they quit it because, you know, they think that maybe if they go to a new church, they'll finally get that, that missing piece of their spiritual life that they've been looking for. You know, however they want to they categorize it. Sometimes people quit churches because they think that if they move to a new one, it will be free of any problems or difficulties that they're facing in their current church. Now, of course, we know kind of from an intellectual standpoint that this isn't true but it doesn't change the way that we feel at times. And yes, I say that. Yes, some churches are better than others, just like some jobs are better than others, just like some relationships are better than others. But on this earth, there are no perfect churches. 
And what we see in this letter to the church in Philadelphia, go ahead and turn to Revelation 3, verse 7, if you haven't already done that. What we see in this letter that we're about to read is not perfection. It's not perfection. But it is a glimpse of what we should strive for when it comes to church. So let's go ahead and read this. Would you stand with me today, wherever you are, for the reading of God's word? Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. You can follow along. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on this earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write, excuse me, I will write a name, write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Well, I want to begin by looking at the way Jesus addresses himself in this letter. Uh, he always begins with a unique introduction, and so we've tried to point out and, and to highlight the different characteristics of these introductions that are, are valuable to us. And I believe there are three things here worth noticing. One, he says, you know, to him who is holy and true, of him who is holy and true, he's talking about himself. Jesus is referring to himself here. And these statements, being holy and true, this description puts Jesus on par with God. Now, this is not a surprise. We know that Jesus is God. We see this kind of language a number of places throughout Scripture and a number of places throughout these letters. Uh, to be more specific, he says holy, you know. Well, what does it mean to be holy? Well, a simple way is to understand that when you're holy, you have complete separation from sin. Jesus is perfect. He is not tainted in any way. In the New Testament, we see the words Holy One used as a description of the Messiah. John 6, verse 69, Peter says, We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. When it comes to the word true, I don't really think that there's anything uh, that unique about this word when it comes to understanding it. Um, this is something that is authentic. This is something or someone that is genuine. Where I really believe there's value in understanding this it comes not based on the description in and of itself, but it, it comes when you, when you compare it to something that is not. I mean, think about that. When you, when you lay something that is true against the world, something that is true against something that is not, the truth stands out in great contrast. There's no way to deny that. There's no way to ignore it. 
Secondly, he says the key of David. This is an interesting phrase. You hear, you hear David and you're kind of automatically transported back to the Old Testament. You think of King David. You think of you know, David and Goliath. You think of all the promises that God uh, gave to David and, and the significance of him and his, his throne. Well, what we need to understand here is that a key in Scripture equals authority. A key in Scripture equals authority. We see it like this in Matthew 16 and 9, excuse me, verse 19. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In fact, you can just stay in the book of Revelation. You can look in Revelation 1, verse 18, because Jesus says this about himself. He says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus is holy. He has separation from sin. Jesus is true. He's authentic. Um, Jesus has authority. And finally, he says, what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. This is power power. No one can undo the things that Jesus has done. No one can, can force their way into a place that he has closed off, and no one can close off a place that he wants to remain open. Jesus has power. These are the, the defining characteristics of this introduction. And, and honestly, because of the way the last few letters have gone, I want to make sure that you understand that this is a positive introduction. Now, I know that he doesn't say anything about the church. The introductions are always about Jesus. But they speak to his character, his ability, uh, in an uplifting way. And it's worth noting because, you know, recently we have seen the mentions of things like the double-edged sword. We've talked about the feet of burnished bronze. And he says these things as a way to set the tone for what is to come because he wants the recipients to know that the letter is going to be a letter of judgment. That's not the case when it comes to the church in Philadelphia. And the letter itself is interesting. We're going to work our way through it bit by bit and kind of tear it apart like we like to do. But the letter itself from a broader scale is pretty interesting because I'm sure you noticed this already in case you didn't already know it. There's no concern. There's no negative. There's nothing that Jesus calls them out on. And this is, this is incredible to me, you know, for the one reason, okay, we know the church isn't perfect simply because we know the church isn't perfect. We know the people there aren't perfect. But it's great because you think of it in contrast to the letter we read and talked about last week when my dad looked at the church in Sardis. This was the church that was basically all concern. Jesus says that they are dead. Now, I realize that the church in Philadelphia, they're not the only one. If you remember this, they're not the only one that doesn't have anything negative said about them. The church in Smyrna is the same way. This is the second letter that we looked at in this series. But why the letter to Philadelphia stands out more to me is because there doesn't appear to be the same kind of persecution in Philadelphia that there was in Smyrna. And I realize that, that Jesus' followers always faced persecution. There were always difficulties. The letter talks about, you know, the synagogue of Satan, and they're causing trouble for them. And we're going to talk about them in a minute. 
but it's different. It's different with Philadelphia than it was in Smyrna. You know, this letter talks about, talks about their deeds. The letter to Smyrna begins where Jesus says, I know your afflictions. He says, I know your poverty. This is a terrible and a terrifying situation for the people to be in. But because of that, the persecution that they faced was this purifying agent. And it got rid of anyone who had a, a half-hearted belief or a shallow faith. That's not what we see in Philadelphia. We don't see that kind of weeding out process taking place. What we do see is faithfulness. What we do see is faithfulness. So go ahead and write this down next to number one in your handout. Write down the commendation. The commendation. Verses 8 through 10 say, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, there is a lot of meat in this section. That's the best way that I think I can describe it. But at the same time, when you read this, there isn't that much about the church itself. What we do get, though, are a lot of promises from Jesus. There's a lot about Jesus. And I think that sometimes we need to be reminded that that's the way it ought to be. We can think about the church at Ephesus, for example. They're the easiest example. They're the easiest to pick on, honestly. Uh, but, you know, we think about them in the letter that they received and how there were all these specific, you know, good things that Jesus said about them, about how they, they work hard and they persevere and they don't tolerate sin and they test false teachings and they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans and all of these different things. But at the same time, we know that they don't love. They've lost their first love. And because of that, Jesus tells them to repent. He tells them to remember there's this concern. We don't get, you know, specifics like that when it comes to the church in Philadelphia. We get some good things. We get some, you know, uh, good notes about the things that the church does, but mostly it's what Jesus promises them. It's what Jesus has for them, and I love that. I love it. I mean, you, you can look at the, the good things that he says about them, and I think this is interesting. One of them, it doesn't even appear to be that much of a compliment. You know, he says, he says that you have little strength. That, that seems a bit backhanded. You know, you have little strength. And, and we know, okay, it's Jesus, so he can't really be sarcastic. You know, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt when it comes to his letter to this church. But it seems odd. And it makes me think of uh, what you might call... Uh, good for compliments. I don't know if that makes sense or if you've ever thought of them like that. I'm sure you've all received them. It's something like this. Like someone comes up to you and they say like, you know, well, you're a pretty good driver for someone who gets a lot of tickets. It's kind of this like, like, the, like it's not, I'm not quite offended. Like you're not quite insulting me, but you're definitely not complimenting me either. You know, like, like you're, you're, you're pretty strong for someone who never works out. You know, you're a good cook for someone who doesn't know how to boil water. You know, it's like these caveats where it's like, well, I, I can tell you that you're good, but only if you understand that, like, the level that I'm grading you on is way down here. You know, you have a little strength. It, it stands out as a little bit odd to us at first, but, uh, you know, we know 
Now, that's not exactly what Jesus is doing here. And I hope you know that. Uh, this is really a wonderful truth. You know, last week my dad talked about the fact that there, there was no such thing as a small sin. No just overlooked or unimportant sin. Well, I'm not going to say that it, it's a perfect, perfectly equal comparison. But, but I wonder, you know, if there's no such thing as, as small strength either, especially when it comes to Jesus. The most obvious example comes from Matthew 17, verse 20. He says, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move here, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You see, the mustard seed, like the faith, it starts out small, but it grows. It grows to be able to do and accomplish great things. And what's important for us to understand is to not really think about, you know, well, what, is, what does Jesus really mean by little strength? And what's the grading scale? And how does this look? I think, I think we need to take it at face value and understand that Jesus does not tell the church in Philadelphia that they're weak. He tells the church that they have strength. It's little. It's small. It may seem insignificant compared to, you know, some depending on what you're looking at. But Jesus says you have strength. Chances are this church was not very large. That's not a huge guess uh, because of church planting in that day and age and just the difficulties that we see in in the scripture and and we know about because of other historical uh, documents. So chances are the church was not very large, but it had a big impact on the city. You know, this, this is a commendation. This church has strength, but, you know, their, their, their works and their marketing plans and their assimilation strategies and their growth conferences and all the, the kind of self-promotion things that, that people might think of, they're not what is highlighted here. They're not what the focal point is. Jesus is. Jesus is. He overshadows this whole commendation section of the letter. And I really think that's the way it should be. I think that's the way it should be for churches. I think that's the way it should be for people in those churches. You know, yeah, there are good things. We know that the church was obedient. He says, you have kept my word. We know the church held fast under pressure. He says, you've not denied my name. And we know the church was faithful because he says, you kept my command to endure patiently. You kept my command to endure patiently. And we're going to get to the promises. We're going to look at the big promises that Jesus mentions in this section. But I don't want to dismiss the deeds and the good things that this church accomplished. And I really want to talk about this idea of faithfulness because I believe it's what has the most weight. And I believe it is what brings about the promises that Jesus has for this church. He says, you've kept my command to endure patiently. I believe that endurance is one of the most difficult things to have in our lives. You know, and I say that because because people, because churches, you know, we can be strong in the moment. We can stand our ground for a day. Uh, We can, you know, pass one test, but to remain faithful for days, weeks, months, years, and to not ever uh, weaken or, or, or compromise that takes endurance. And it's an impressive thing, and I believe it's what we see at this church. And, and you know, and we know this, you know, to do anything great, to do anything great, it requires faithfulness. And you have to develop endurance. 
I think we just don't like this. I think we just don't like this because it's hard, because it takes time, because I want it now, because, you know, we live in a culture of immediate gratification, but this is the reality. I mean, if you wake up tomorrow and you decide that you want to become a great piano player, uh, that, all of a sudden, that is just the desire of your heart. You know that you have to be faithful to accomplish that goal. You have to develop some endurance, some perseverance. Well, what does that mean? Uh, well, it means you probably need to practice more than just once a week. It probably means that you have to understand you're not going to accomplish your goal in a couple of months. It probably means that you have to understand that you're going to make sacrifices when it comes to your free time, when it comes to other hobbies, other things that you like to do, maybe even when it comes to some of the relationships that you have. And one of the difficulties when it comes to being faithful is that we have to know most of the time no one will see our faithfulness and no one will praise us for it. And because of that, we'll start to doubt, we'll feel alone, and we'll wonder why we're doing what we're doing. I realize that I just talked about a piano player as an illustration. Let's, let's move over here and let me talk about sports, you know, just trying to appeal to as many people as I can. Uh, chances are most of us don't ever, you know, watch the athletes practice. We don't know what their diets are like and things like that. I realize we get some of that because of sports shows and social media. But chances are for most of us, all we pay attention to is the game. We know when the games are on. And that's what we watch. But at the same time, you know, for that athlete that we love, for that team that we root for, for them to be competitive, to, to try to gain some kind of edge, they have to do all of the behind-the-scenes stuff that, that no one will know about, no one will praise them for. And at times, they have to wonder, you know, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? Does it really give me that much of an advantage? Is it really worth what it costs me? What it costs me in my time? What it costs me in my money? What it costs me in my relationships? And I'm not going to pretend this morning that this is the perfect illustration for us. But hopefully you can understand what I'm getting at. Because the reality is, for many of us, our lives can, can seem like nothing more than practice. And what I mean when I say that is, you know, we never have that moment in the sun and we never feel like people notice what we do and we never feel like people care about what we do and we never feel like, you know, the faithfulness that we have makes that big of an impact in the world around us. And we wonder, you know, is it really worth it? Does it really matter? Why am I going through all of this? If I don't see any real changes in my life or in my relationships or in the world around me, but what we see in this letter hopefully reminds us of what we already know. And it's the simple truth that nothing is ever lost on Jesus. Nothing that you do, nothing that you say, no act of faithfulness, no act of obedience is ever overlooked, belittled, or dismissed by Jesus. Hopefully you understand that. Hopefully you realize that. We, we've talked, again, in these letters, I keep mentioning all the other letters. We talk about how Jesus begins by saying, you know, that phrase, I know your deeds. And it's this all-encompassing knowledge. And, you know, for some of us, sometimes uh, that can be a little scary because we know that our deeds, we don't always want people to know about them. Uh, that's just the reality of life. It's not a good part of life, but, you know, that's why we need a Savior. Uh, but at the same time, hopefully, it can be comforting as well. Because we have that reassurance that Jesus knows 
what we're going through, what we're dealing with, and how we're living our lives. I mean, you can think about this. Let's get back to the, to the scriptures. You can think about the contrast between the church in Philadelphia and the church in Sardis, where one is alive and thriving and one is dead. You know, Sardis, the church that we talked about last week, they developed a reputation. Jesus says, you have a reputation for being alive. Well, what does that mean? It means that they obeyed when it was new and exciting. Uh, they, they were good at self-promotion, you know. People knew them. They knew what they did, or at least they thought they did. But the church in Philadelphia appears to be everything that they are not. They don't have a reputation, but they do have a little strength. They're not flashy. They're not showy. They're obedient. They're faithful. And yeah, you know, we understand uh, that those are good qualities to have. But at the same time, uh, I think most of us, we want a little more than that. We don't necessarily want someone to describe us with two words by saying, well, he's obedient and he's faithful. That is the way that we describe good pets. Um, that's, just, that's just the truth. And, and so we can, we can, and I say that because there's a risk here. There's a risk here to, to want something more, to want something greater, to try to do something on our own, to try to, to have a little bit of this, look at me, look at everything else that I've done, look at what I can accomplish, personality. But what we need to understand is that none of that matters. What other people think, what kind of reputation uh, people want to put on us, none of it matters when it comes to what Jesus thinks about us. And I think that's what we see at this church in Philadelphia. I think that they didn't care. They didn't care because they knew they lived for Jesus and Jesus loved them. That's why we read these incredible promises that I want to spend some time on this morning. The first one, we see this in verse 8. He says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. We talked about this. Jesus mentions this in the introduction. This is power. This is Jesus' authority to, 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 for, where no one can undo anything that he has done. But what does it mean to this church? I think there are two things that really stand out. One, it means that they have a secure relationship with him. I mean, that is to say their salvation is secure with him. And we know that Jesus holds the keys. Jesus holds the door. No one is closing it. They're faithful. They're true. They're honest. And that's the way that it is. And the second thing, and I, I love this because I think it, obviously we all need to strive for both of these, but I love this because it's a beautiful picture that we see throughout Scripture. Uh, when we read about an open door, what it often refers to is an opportunity to serve. Jesus has opened a door for them to serve, for them to witness, for them to make a difference. And no one's going to close it. No one's going to stop them. And no one's going to slow them down. In 1 Corinthians 16, for example, Paul writes about staying at Ephesus because a door of service has been opened to him. When you read the letter of Colossians, Paul asks the believers to pray for an open door to their message. And so this is something we need to understand and we need to be grateful for because we need to ask for open doors. We need to strive uh, to live the kind of lives that God will open doors for us to, to witness to people, to impact people, to serve people. It's an incredible promise. The second thing he says is, I'll just kind of sum it up a little bit. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan 
Come and fall down at your feet. Fall down at your feet. Now, we've seen this, this synagogue of Satan already in our study. We know they were present at the church in Smyrna. Uh, These unbelieving Jews, they were making trouble for the believers in Philadelphia. And because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they were not called the synagogue of God. They had this new title. But even though they're causing problems now, eventually, they will bow in total defeat and submission to this church, to Jesus' church. Jesus says, you know, they will say that, that, that he loved them. He loved the church in Philadelphia. I think this is, I mean, this is a powerful image. I, I don't even think I need to describe it a whole lot, but you get this picture of bowing down before someone in submission. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And for these believers, these, excuse me, these false believers you know, to, to tell the church in Philadelphia, no doubt, that, that God doesn't love them and they're not living the right way and Jesus isn't the Messiah. And then to know that one day they will come and they will admit, yes, he is Lord. He is Savior. That's an incredible promise. Finally, Jesus says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, as you can imagine, this promise has a lot of speculation surrounding it. Uh, The church in Philadelphia, um, you know, had passed the test. They endured patiently. And so Jesus lets them know that they're going to be spared what is to come. Uh, You know, you take into account the perennial nature of these letters. And and you understand that this is a sweeping promise that extends to all faithful churches. And so we ask ourselves this question, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Is it it a pre-tribulation rapture? Is it, you know, exceptions not from persecution that we all face in this world, but from God's divine judgment that we know will come and that we'll see unfold later in this book? Well, as you can imagine, some believe one of those, some believe the other. And because we're just kind of sticking to these letters, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning. What I want to do is actually encourage you, uh, if you're really interested in this, to, to go back to a sermon series that my dad did not that long ago called Next, where he went through the book of Revelation. Uh, I've said in the other services that we have copies of this available in the Resource Center. I don't know if we still do. I don't know if anybody actually went and got any of them. Uh, so they may be there. They may not be. I know that our media team is working on making them available for you online so that you can uh, dive into this a little bit deeper if it's something that you're very interested in. What I want to do for the purpose of our time together this morning is, is just to kind of highlight the things to note about this promise and about this coming trial that we see in the letter itself. So you may want to write these down if, you, if you're interested in this. You don't, you don't have to. I'm just going to kind of go through them like bullet points for the sake of our time together. But the first thing is that it, it is for the future. It's for the future. Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world. So this is for the future. It's something that has not happened yet. Uh, number two, the, the trial is for a limited time. He says the hour of trial. There is a set uh, time period that this will take place. You know, there is a beginning and an end uh, for this time. Uh, number three, it is best understood as a test to reveal who people truly are. Who are you really? 
Number four, it is worldwide in scope. Worldwide in scope. It says it's going to come on the whole world. And, and number five, finally, this is interesting. Uh, the phrase, those who live on the earth, uh, maybe your, your translation says earth dwellers even. Uh, it's not just a general kind of comment for all of humanity. Uh, in Revelation, it's more of a technical term that is specific to unbelievers. So this test for unbelievers uh, is something that they will either pass by repenting, by accepting Jesus as their Savior, or they will fail by not doing that. Uh, one, it's for the future. Two, it's for a limited time. Three, it's a test to reveal who people truly are. Four, it's worldwide in scope. And five, uh, you pass or fail by repenting and accepting Jesus as your Savior. All right, well, we spent a lot of time on this first section, this commendation section, because I believe there is so much in here to talk about, so much in, in relevance to faithfulness, so much in relevance to Jesus' promise, but we need to keep moving. So write down, next to number two, write down the command, the command. In verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. His comment on coming soon, this is a way to place urgency in the minds of the readers. Urgency in our minds. Because even though obviously the second coming of Jesus has not happened yet, we know that it could take place at any moment. And we need to live in such a way where we understand that. And when it comes to the command itself, you know, where Jesus tells the church to do something... Uh, I honestly believe that they received the best command of all the churches in these letters because essentially what Jesus tells them is to keep on doing what you've been doing. Keep on doing what you've been doing. Hold on to what you have. And, you know, sometimes people don't want to hear that. They want something bigger and better. They think, okay, well, if I've accomplished goal number one, I can move on or, in our minds, you know, move up to goal number two. But Jesus pays them a huge compliment by telling them that, you know, they've been doing right all along. All along. And personally, I would like to hear that from Jesus. There are times in my life when I wonder whether or not I would. But I think it would be an incredible thing for Jesus to, to write me a letter like this and to say, Andrew, you've been doing what you're supposed to do all along. Hopefully you would like to hear that as well. Maybe, maybe you're like me and, and you question sometimes because you know the reality of your life and you question sometimes whether or not that would happen. But we can look at this church, and, and as I've mentioned time and time again, we can look at their faithfulness and we can work toward putting that into practice in our own lives. And, you know, I talk about faithfulness, but I really think that we need to, to have an idea of what exactly I mean when I say that because it's a difficult thing. And a lot of times, I believe people downgrade the, uh, the importance of faithfulness and, and what it means to be faithful. And I say that because I believe, you know, that, that there is a positive element to this. And, and you know, okay, imagine, imagine you're in a marriage, and, you know, we think about a faithful husband. Well, what does that mean? That means he doesn't commit adultery. That means he doesn't cheat on his, his wife. And that's great. That's the way that it ought to be. But if you have a close personal friend who comes to you one day and they say, hey, you know, I've just been thinking about you. And I wanted to ask you, how is your marriage going? And, and he, all you say is, well, he hasn't cheated on me. Like, that's great. That really is. But hopefully there's more to it than that. 
You know, hopefully there's a deeper level of love and affection and, and trust and, and commitment and experience and joy together than, than just this kind of what you could call, you know, bare minimum of what it means to be faithful. And I believe that's what we see at the church in Philadelphia. You know, I believe that they were faithful, not just because, you know, they came to church every week. I believe that they were. I believe that they, they, they were faithful in their attendance. You know, I, I don't want to downplay that. But at the same time, you know, they were faithful in not embracing false teaching. They were faithful in, in committing or completing the work that God had given them. And that's why we see things like the door opened to them to do even more and to continue on with what they were already doing. You know, they're faithful to their city, serving their city, serving others. And I'm sure that we could come up with with other examples if we really wanted to. But what I want you to understand is that there's so much more than just, you know, being there when it comes to faithfulness. And we can look at our lives and we can ask the question, you know, how faithful, how faithful am I? How faithful am I in my relationship with God? How faithful am I with my money? How faithful am I with my time, with my service, with my marriage, with my role as a parent, with my job, with my attitude, and on and on and on. You know, what's the measuring stick? Am I a faithful employee just because I come to work every day and sit at my desk for 40 hours a week? Is that all it takes? You know, or is there more to it than that? Am I a faithful Christian because I never miss a weekend, but that's all I do? You know, there's so many things that we need to understand about this to get the most out of it. And I don't ever want any of us to settle for just, you know, the minimum requirements. That's not what it is. It's not about just doing as little as possible so that we don't get fired or so that we, you know, don't have a broken home or so that we you know, have a relationship with God. It's not about just doing as little as possible. It's about uh, deep, continuing, growing, flourishing way of life. Write this down next to number three, the conclusion, the conclusion. I want to look at these last couple of verses one more time. It says, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out from heaven, out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's two things real quick I want to say. The first one has to do with Jesus saying that those who overcome, he will make a pillar in the temple of God. I love this. I love this because a pillar is strong, a pillar is sturdy. Uh, you, you think of a pillar and you think of something that is permanent, something that lasts. And the residents of the city of Philadelphia, I believe that they loved this because their city was always under the constant threat of earthquakes. You know, from a historical standpoint, they had to flee the city a number of times, not just because of the initial destruction or the initial quake, but because of the aftershocks as well. Even if the earthquake was worse in another location, for whatever reason, the city of Philadelphia had bad luck when it came to this. 
And when you think about God telling someone that they will, he will make them a pillar, you know, yes, there are some great spiritual implications that we could draw from this. But honestly, I can't help but think of the personal nature of this letter specifically given to this church and these people who knew what it was like to live on unstable ground. And the comfort that these words were to them. I've never lived through an earthquake. I've never felt the ground shake. I've never seen destruction because of it. You know, I think I'm like a lot of people, and the closest I've ever come is watching movies where it happens. But I love this because Jesus tells these people that with him, they are stable and secure. With him, they'll never have to flee. They'll never have to run away. They, they are his forever. And the second thing that we see has to do with this uh, giving of names. Brian can go ahead and come and get ready to play. But I want to talk about this because I think it's a beautiful picture from the scriptures. Um, you know, it says that, that we will get the name of his God, the name of the city of his God, and his, that's Jesus' new name. And we know from scripture that it's not uncommon for believers to get new names, for people to be identified with more than one name. But really, I don't think that's what we see here. What we see here is just different levels of the depth of what God wants for us. Now, each of these names applies to a different promise, a different thing that he has for us. The first one, the first name, the name of God. This has to do with ownership. Ownership. All true Christians belong to God. And throughout Scripture, we are called bondservants, we are called children, we are called heirs. And over and over again, God is telling us, don't worry because you're mine. Don't worry because you're mine. Don't Take heart, I have overcome the world. God reminds us of this time and time again that we belong to him. I, I, I hope for you there's great comfort and security in that. The second name, the name of the city, has to do with our citizenship in the new Jerusalem. I would encourage all of you this week to read Revelation 21 sometime on your own. Read about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It's incredible. You know, Jesus tells his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. This is our citizenship. This is our home. You know, this world is not our home. We have a home with God. And he lets us know that. Finally, the third name, the name of Jesus. This is all the fullness that we receive in Christ. And I love this. Obviously, they're all great. You know, how do you distinguish between the two of these? But over and over again in these letters, what we've seen when it comes to the promises that God offers those who overcome is himself. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, my gift to you is me. I don't know if we can truly grasp that. You know, we can think about some of the relationships that we have. We can think about how we, we give ourselves to others as, as, as husbands and wives, you know, as parents, you know, whatever the, the you know, situation is. But for Jesus to say, what I want to give you is me. That's an incredible thing. I think that's what we should keep in, in mind as we pray this morning.